Before we get started for this week's show, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you gain access to extended podcasts and other bonus content. This week, we catch up with Angie Rath and we wrap news from around the emerging world. Stick around. Hello and welcome to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick. I'll be joined by Tim Culler and Nick Skinner in a few moments' time when we sit down with Anshi Rath. But first, some news around the Emerging Cricket world. Namibia's franchise T20 competition wrapped up after a COVID restart this week with BA Blasting crowned champions. Led by national team captain Herrera Rasmus Blasting went undefeated across the tournament with a skipper top scoring with 69 off 35 balls in the final. Blasting defended 200 for the title, winning by five runs, despite the efforts of Namibian under-19 international Devon Lecoq, who made 123 not out from 59 balls. Earlier in the tournament, Nicole Lofty-Eaton achieved a rare feat, scoring two unbeaten centuries on the same day. Japan has opened its first purpose-built cricket ground in the western region of the country, with the Kaizuka Cricket Field holding its first events last weekend. Kaizuka is the fourth city of cricket in the country, with Akashima and Sanmu joining Sano. Nepal's Dangadi Premier League has been postponed due to COVID-19 with a future date yet to be determined. Meanwhile, national team quick Lalit Bandari has been discharged from hospital with the help of funding from both teammates and fans to aid his treatment. And finally, tributes are flowed after the death of Afghanistan international Najib Tarakai. The Afghan cricket board delivered the somber news on Tuesday after Najib succumbed to injuries after a road accident. Najib was 29. For more news, head to EmergingCricket.com. But coming up, we catch up with Antje Rath. Uh, this is Will Glenwright, General Manager of Development for the International Cricket Council, and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Well, here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, we've been able to sit down with a number of great guests, and this week we have a guest returning to the show. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Former captain of Hong Kong, now based in India, and one of the prettiest players to watch, left-hander Anshi Rath. Welcome in once again. Cheers, cheers, Dan. Good to be back. It's been a year since we last heard from you moving to India. And, and given the, the year, it's been a crazy one at that. Has it felt like three years in lockdown? I understand you're in Nagpur. What's the situation like there at the moment? Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite humbling, the whole situation. It's not been easy, especially with cases in India continuously on the rise. Um, doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon. And, you know, cricket's a big question mark as of the season for next year or for this coming year. So lot, lots of uncertainty to it. But, you know, the one thing that I can say that I've achieved during this lockdown is that, you know, my motivation towards making the move initially has not been dampened. You know, I'm still as motivated as I was a year ago. I'm still as hungry as I was a year ago, which is which is a good thing. And yeah, as we said, you started in, in you moved to Mumbai. You are in Nagpur now, um, trying to crack the system in Vidarbha. A lot of people were asking about your roots, well, your parents' roots in Odisha, and people actually thinking that you were born there as well, when in fact you were born in, in Hong Kong. Talk to us about the, the Indian system. At, at Where are you at at the moment? Yeah, so, so far, I've, I believe, qualified officially uh, to play and represent the state of Vidarbha. Uh, right now, it's just a question of getting my documents in order and getting registered by the BCCI as a local player for Vidarbha. So I think from what I understand, again, from the chats I've had with the BCA, that's pretty pretty systematic. It's, it's not 
something that's overly complicated. It's it's as routine as as you know training, I suppose. So I think the deadline is, I believe, on the fifteenth of October, which is coming up, and、um, I'm waiting them to send. The documents through, but once that's through,、uh, I believe I'll be officially eligible to be selected for for Durban. So, if you're eligible to play for Vidarbha, does that mean you are eligible as a local player in next year's IPL? From what I understand of the rules, is that I need to play one BCCI registered tournament match. So, whether that be an under twenty three match or an say I was under nineteen, an under nineteen match or Uh, a T20 match for Vidarbha, representing the state of Vidarbha, one match in any age group, then I qualify officially to get into the auction. And that would be as an uncapped local, isn't that right? Yeah, it would be as an uncapped local player. Which is bizarre, isn't it? You know, captain his country, ODI, T20 cricket, played in World Cups, played against India, played against India. Did he?、Uh, did you play against India? Well, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Oh yeah. Yeah, it, it is a bit strange, but those are the rules. So、um, I'm just hoping that I am able to play one match before next year's auction. You know, amidst the, all the the chat of the season potentially being cancelled, you know, that was a worry of mine. You know, it's not doom and gloom because at least I have a system. But obviously, it would be nice to be able to have the opportunity to play next year's IPL. If you could pick a franchise, who do you play for? Oh, I've heard this question many times.、Um, <laughs> Sorry, I haven't. I haven't watched every one of your Instagrams.、Yeah. Is, is it like everyone who answers、uh, Mancat at, at the law change at the end of this pod? <laughs> Because you'll say I don't listen to your pod, so I didn't know I was going to get asked. Is that? <laughs>、um, well, I wouldn't mind playing for any team to be honest. I know it might sound a bit political, but I mean they're all great. They've all got really good. Coaches under them. If I would be playing for any team, I'd probably say it would either be Bangalore or Rajasthan Royals.、Uh, Bangalore, because you know you've got the Indian captain amongst there to sort of impress, and I think that's a huge motivator for any young cricketer in India. And Rajasthan Royals, obviously, because I've been doing some training under their batting coach Amol Muzumdar back in Mumbai, and、um, he's a fantastic guy and a fantastic coach. And to be a part of, and you know, he's just someone I'm comfortable with. And again, you know the Rajasthan Royals overseas and and the the wealth of experience they have domestically as well is is brilliant. But anyone, to be honest, I'm not too fast. So you've moved over to India a, a year ago now.、Um, what's it been like, you know, living in India as someone who is of Indian heritage, but you know, you you grew up in Hong Kong. Have there been cultural language barriers? Yeah, definitely. I think when I first moved here a year ago, it was a bit of a shock to me. Actually, you know, I I knew what I was getting myself into, but I don't think I anticipated as to quite how hard it would be. You know, you live 14 years in Hong Kong, seven years in the UK, and then to not only you know live in India for the first time, but to live in Nagpur, which isn't exactly a metropolitan city, was quite of a shock to me.、Um, definitely, there were language barriers that I encountered. But you know, I believe that whatever has happened to me in the past with my cricketing journey so far, I think it's sort of prepared me for dealing with tough situations like this. You know, I I knew that there was a bigger goal to be achieved, and I knew that I would have to tough it out for a year, and I did. And you know, I spent four months in Nagpur, and then after that, I shifted off to Mumbai for a good seven eight months. You know, to train with a mole. It was only for two months, and then the、uh, the coronavirus hit, and I wasn't able to do much. But you know, just to sort of get a feel of how things are run and how the cricket system in India is run was、uh, was definitely good. You know, it, it's been a tough year, but it's been a good year. 
So your native language is English. You went, grew up in Hong Kong school and then went overseas into the UK, finished your schooling. What, what does that mean language-wise in, in India? You know, how's your Hindi? Does Hindi get you anywhere or in Nagpur, what, what are you speaking? Well, I've got to give credit to some of my Hong Kong teammates, you know, playing with them. You know, you've got a lot of uh, Asian heritage in the Hong Kong team. So just speaking to them, uh, you know, when I was younger, growing up and playing alongside them definitely has helped. You know, all these little bits and phrases that I've learned through watching films with my old man when I was younger and speaking to people. It's just something that I've learned that it's enough to get by over here. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very thankful that I've learned that skill. Otherwise, it definitely it would have been a lot harder to navigate myself in India. In terms of the, the situation with COVID at the moment in India, we understand, you know, it's hit you guys a lot harder than, than other parts of the world. What are your actual uh, regulations that you have to abide by at the moment? Are you basically just doing your own physical training regimes in your own residence? Are you able to go outside and, and do things as well? What's the situation? So it, it depends on state to state. Some states are pretty lenient at the moment because they don't have as many cases. But unfortunately, Nagpur is, is in Maharashtra, which is the worst affected state. So there are certain guidelines. Right now, what the VCA have done is they've appointed Zoom fitness sessions with the trainer. So every morning at, at 7.30, we sort of get on a Zoom call and do our fitness that we need to. And, and I've joined that over the last month or so after September 1st, after I qualified. And, um, you know, that's been going good. It's not as bad as, you know, we are able to go outside. It's, it's the actual cricket, which is not really happening in terms of a team training performance. It's all sort of do it your own individual stuff. So there is a ground which is which I'm able to access about 10, 15 minutes away. And I'm, I'm getting someone to, to sling at me for an hour you know, every other day. And uh, for now, that's all I can ask for, really. That's all that's being done. So you you talked about how you know your family's from Odisha and you're you're playing in Vidarbha. Do you feel as a bit of an outsider? How does that play with your identity, both as a you know as a Hong Kong um, native Hong Konger? You know, do you feel Indian? Do you feel Odishian? Like, what's the regional rivalry between the states, and and how is it as you as as someone of Indian heritage but not actually from India? Well, for me, you know, my entire life I've always been an outsider. I think. To be born from an Indian household in Hong Kong, to then move to England and then come back to India. You know, wherever I've gone, I've always felt like, you know, I've been looked on as an outsider. It's just something that I've got used to at the moment. I think, you know, me making the move to come to India was something that I didn't take lightly. And the state that I had gone to, that I placed importance on, would have essentially shaped the next 10, 15 years of my career. You know, you hear of the Prithvi Shores, the Shubman Gills, you know, all the youngsters coming up who are tailor-made play for India over the next few years. All of them were scattered at the age of 12, 13 or 14 in their respective states. Unfortunately, I'm coming to a brand new system at the age of 21. I was 21 at the time. And in order to get the best out of myself, it was very important as to what state that I go to. And personally, I felt that Vidarbha was a very good fit for me. And Orissa was something that was an option, but I felt more enticed towards Vidarbha. And in terms of the outsider looking in, I think, you know, wherever I went in India, I would have been an outsider. So for me, that wasn't as important as going to the right system and going into the right. Now, without piddling in your pocket too much here, just something that you said that really grabbed me about you feeling like you've always been an outsider. And I think it takes me back to comments that, like, hurts to say it, but the late, great Dean Jones referring to your interview during the Asia Cup in 2018, and he tweeted, 
the video to say that he couldn't believe that you were, geez, I think you were 19 at the time and the way that you were speaking about the team. I think it might have been actually after the Pakistan game and, and what the team needed to do to improve and why you were there, etc. So on one hand, you're saying that you've always felt like an outsider and yet you captained your country in your teens and was one of the leading batsmen in the world that year. How do you think that feeling of being an outsider, even in your own homeland in Hong Kong and UK and now in India, has driven you and which qualities that that it's maybe instilled in you that it may not be in people who who wouldn't describe their existence that way. Yeah, it, it, it has been tough, you know, especially, you know, the last year or so playing for Hong Kong. You know, there's certainly some moments where I certainly was questioning the pride that I felt for playing for Hong Kong. You know, when I was younger, it was certainly never an issue. You know, I was very, very proud to put on the Hong Kong shirt, but going down the line, you know, when things started to get a bit pear-shaped, certain problems going inside within the team and, and within coaching staff and the team and the players, and it didn't feel like home. I think when you've got such a diverse place like Hong Kong, you know, you're never struck down to one identity. It's always having the ability to be able to adapt to people's different personas. And, you know, I was very fortunate enough that my father sent me to an English-speaking school. I was raised an Indian and, you know, my ability to communicate and coordinate with the other players in my team weren't as much of a struggle as it was for others. And um, it just sometimes felt like you were caught in between two worlds, essentially. But at the end of the day, I am and always will be very proud to play for Hong Kong. But definitely at times it does feel like it's very hard to get that pride going when other players sort of don't edge you on. I think being in a team environment that's positive is a very important thing. And, you know, I can't stress that enough to anyone is that being in a positive team environment only brings the best out of yourself. And being in a negative team environment only brings out the worst of yourself. Certainly when I first went off to the UK, I definitely felt like an outsider. You know, eyes looking at me, who is this lad from Hong Kong coming in, trying to claim a stake in in the UK, you know, we don't need him, we don't want him. You know, obviously all those things and all those thoughts are going to go into your mind when you're 14 years old. And then to have everything that happened with me regarding the visas, you know, that made me feel even more of an outsider. And then coming to India, obviously, you know, you get looks just by walking on the streets because uh, everyone's got an opinion over there. So it's definitely made me tougher, I would say. And it's something that has... You know, like you say, you can either look at it in a negative way or look at it in a positive way and use that to push you. And, uh, you know, that's something that I've tried to do. So you you mentioned going to England as an outsider and then obviously coming to India and and being a bit of an outsider there. And even within Hong Kong, the attitudes from the ethnic Chinese majority towards the Indian community is often pretty cold. So, you know, how did you grow up navigating that attitude as a, you know, as a local born and bred, but also on the outside in, in that sense? Well, I never dealt with the local Chinese as much as most others did because, you know, I went to an English school foundation, which was primarily where, you know, a lot of Americans, English, Australians would send their kids to school. Going to a school like that obviously was very diverse. I was able to understand different personalities and different people and their cultures and their backgrounds, you know, a lot easier and quicker as as others might do you know unfortunately cricket's not the biggest amongst the Chinese but I never I never had to interact with them as much as you know other players in my my team would have had to. Did you regret not being part of that you know majority population at any point? 
I mean, I would have loved to learn Mandarin fluently. I think that would have been a very, very handy skill to have. But I mean, it's sort of yes and no. I think going to an English school foundation, you know, you still had a lot of Chinese kids go there. You know, I certainly had a lot of Chinese friends growing up, but, you know, understanding their culture and, and all of that would have, I would have maybe felt more of a local had I had gone to a local school, you know, where you speak the language, you get fully immersed uh, into their culture, into their traditions, you know, you're able to communicate with them without a problem. But then, you know, looking back, you can say that had I done that, I wouldn't have been able to understand different cultures as easily as I do now, you know, certainly going to West Island School, which is where I went to in Hong Kong, having that ability to, to understand different cultures and grow up and, you know, speak to them, communicate to them, you know, that in itself was a huge benefit, you know, looking down the line, moving to the UK and then moving to India, that's definitely helped me, uh, helped me in the long run. Just thinking about you brought up um, living in, in the UK a couple of times now, and, and we know about the red tape issues that surrounded Middlesex and your time there but for people who are maybe new to the Anchi Rath story and new to the issues of say associate cricketers playing in England and, and, and the issues surrounding county cricket you were quite prolific in your time there scoring a mountain of runs at, at just about every level you played but you were unable to acquire the rights to live and, and play in the UK could you perhaps elaborate on, on the situation there we talk about you know passports and, and the issues surrounding players especially in England trying to better their game and it's been a year since you made the move to India where I think we were a little bit surprised there were murmurs of of moving elsewhere and England wasn't an option in the end could you perhaps explain why that might have been the case yeah so moving to England obviously age 14 was was a big decision you know it's something that I said that I can get my education done at a very high level as well as play sport at a high level and see where either or takes me and you know integrated into the Middlesex side uh, at, at the academy lovely people, lovely coaches, you know, it felt very comfortable and everything was progressing well. Then obviously at the age of 19 to get a tap on the shoulder and everything that I'd been working for, for the previous three, four, five years was towards being a professional in the UK, you know, and then having that taken away with the snap of your fingers was not something that I was able to comprehend at the time. You try to explain to a kid aged 18 that he's not allowed to play in the country because of document issues. And you're just, you know, I just had a blank. I, I couldn't quite understand what was going on at the time. I remember going back to my uni accommodation and just sitting and staring at a blank wall for, for about three hours, just trying to gather the situation as to what has happened and how, you know, everything over the last four years has essentially gone down the drain. You know, that definitely was was a tough pill to swallow. Also, to rub salt in the wound, I get a letter from the ECB three weeks later asking me to play for the under-19s, which was another very, very strange thing. And, um, you know, that was probably one of my lowest points in the sense that it, it was hard to find an identity because... Since the age of 15, I'd been building it up towards having a career in England. You know, obviously I was playing for Hong Kong, but at the end, my goal was to play in England and to play for England. That was my essential goal. And to have that taken away, you sort of roam around and just say, what what now? What next? You know, playing for Hong Kong is great, but I think we can all agree that it's it's not as sustainable as playing in a professional system, which is what... England had provided. And, you know, a lot of insecurity started going through my mind. Am I good enough? What's happened? Why have they done this? What reason is there for them to cast me aside? You do sort of 
question everything about yourself and about the system because players who I was playing with who have gone on to achieve England colors right now you know I look at someone like Delray for example who I've grown up with him playing against him we also played in the same team in the super fours for London and East and just because of documentation reasons he's allowed to play and I'm not and um, you know just certain things you you don't understand at the age of 18 and um, it definitely was something that i knew that i tried to get back into the system over a year you know credit goes to middlesex they really tried hard angus fraser wrote numerous letters to the ecb trying to figure out if i could get signed as an overseas if they could allow me to come and play you know going through the club route going through a working visa for 5 years and then to potentially qualify So they exhausted all avenues after a year and you know it was a, it was a tough pill to swallow but at the end of the day you know my cricket career was at stake and um, I knew that now was not the time to be mourning my career in England it's now time to look elsewhere and try to get the ball rolling again so you know I've always tried to have a positive outlook on things because you know being negative just doesn't achieve anything you know if something's not gone right then you try to do something to fix it which is which is why you know essentially done playing that year for hong kong you know without being in a stable secure system now i was massively insecure in my own cricket because you'd always play a game and then you'd always look back and say what next where's my next game going to come from where's are we going to lose money now are we going to you know when's our next match when's our next training session are we going to get paid right am i going to be able to support myself financially 5 10 years down the line all of these things in which a professional sportsman shouldn't worry about i did worry about and it just added to a lot of stress within myself and i just said i'm going to be a lot happier if i if i am in a system where the progression is clear and if you do the right things then you're clear to get rewarded so um, so definitely was tough but uh you know looking back it's it's something that I'm glad I did documentation problems you you've said a couple of times what were the problems with documentation you went to school there you'd been schooling there for 6 years tell us what those documentation issues were so from again this is from my understanding i was on a student visa uh when i first moved to the uk and apparently this is what came to fruition is that being on a student visa does not count towards residency in the UK so in order to achieve residency you have to stay in the country for 5 years but student visa doesn't count towards those 5 years which was something that no one was aware of which is why I qualified to play for England because I had done the 5 years so according to the ECB rules and regulations I had qualified to play for England but according to the immigration law I wasn't allowed to play cricket in the country because I needed to be on a sporting visa not on a student visa. So you could have played for England under 19s as they'd send you a letter as long as the games were played outside of England you could have literally had an England shirt on exactly with Rath on the back. This hurts my head. Oh my goodness. But you may not have been allowed back in the country because you didn't have the right working visa or you if you did come back in the country on your student visa you could not be paid Jeez. as a tax yeah. resident of the United Kingdom because you're on a student visa. That's what they explained to me at the age of 18 and you can imagine how confused I was with all things. So what did the ECB do in this stage because it sounds like it wouldn't necessarily be unique and then they must have a lot of kids growing up in the UK on student visas. Did they help you throughout this process because you're an 18-year-old I'm assuming not with an agent it probably means your mum or your dad they're helping you. What what happened during this process? 
Well, it was more me speaking to Middlesex and Middlesex trying to sort it out. I think they, they were amazing. You know, they obviously wrote a lot of letters to the ECB allowing me to be specially compensated or to sort of say, can we sign him as an overseas or can we allow him certain special commiseration or compensation? Can we get him on a summer contract? Can we just pay for his gas, you know, they, they tried to go through every avenue. And unfortunately, due to bad timing, Brexit was happening at the same time. So all of these laws that the ECB might have overlooked 10 years ago were all tightly squeezed and they had to be on top of everything, um, which is why a lot of players back in 2016, 2017 left the UK. A lot of club cricketers left the UK and weren't allowed to play. So all these rules ended up getting tightened. And uh, for me, unfortunately, there was no way in. Yeah, I don't even know where to go from that. There's just so convoluted. Yeah, it's... yeah. It's like a boa constrictor of red tape, <laughs> you know, just wrapped all around you. Like, and, and I, I the whole concept of this, I try to think back. It's getting longer and longer ago. Thus is time. But thinking back to being 18 and having these things thrown at you. Wow. And then come back to Hong Kong, captain your country, and you've got teammates done for match fixing. Yeah. <laughs> just to... to rub salt in the wound. Yeah. Look again. Like I said, I, I've certainly, you know, I might be 22, but I've definitely experienced um, <laughs> a lot of things that most cricketers wouldn't experience. So I could say that I've got that going for me in terms of mental strength. It's, it's definitely something that made me stronger. And uh, it's definitely something that's made me even more motivated to go out and, uh, and achieve my goal of playing test cricket. So that's your ultimate goal. So we talked about the IPL and, and which franchise you'd play for and arguably earning more money in the IPL than going along a progressing along ranchy trophy, stinking hot, four days in the sun, but your choice is still test cricket, is it? Well, see, I've, again, I've played some franchise cricket, not a lot, but I've played enough to see that, you know, the insecurity levels within the players who just play franchise cricket is at an ultimate high. I think IPL and T20 cricket, franchise cricket is fantastic as long as you have a base in which you can always come back to. You know, that's why I give a lot more credit to the Gales and the Bravos of, of, of the world because to sustain that level without having a base is, is something that I certainly don't think I will be able to achieve and do. It's a great supplement to your cricket, but I don't think it should be the end goal for anyone. You know, I remember playing in in Canada. Oh, sorry, yeah, playing in Canada in the in the global T20. I certainly was very insecure about my own cricket, and not because I was hitting the ball badly or or anything like that. It's simply because for me there was a lot more. It was more important to me than all the other players because that was essentially the only cricket I was getting outside of Hong Kong. Because even in Hong Kong, we weren't getting a lot of matches. So when you don't have a base, those matches become more and more important. And therefore, there's a lot more pressure on you as a cricketer to perform in those matches. So I think T20 franchise cricket definitely has its place. But I don't think it should be in the, um, at the detriment of, of first-class cricket or domestic cricket. And just to compound that further, we had the, the pay issues of Canada and and associate cricketers, as you rightly pointed out earlier, you know the financial situation of associate cricket is is already bad enough. And then when it when it's compounded by the issues that you guys had in Canada and and the protests that you guys had, which is full credit to you guys because that was you know really important. You know you guys as players are the most important part of a of a competition like that. 
uh, I'm sure it was actually quite an easy stand for you to make. But just how important is it as as cricketers, even at any level? You know, we we saw findings from players' associations at, at full member level where you know people were complaining that they hadn't been paid in in high end full member franchise competitions as well. So you were almost relieved to to pursue this Indian dream of yours because you know, as you said there's a base for you to, to hopefully go back on and, and not have to worry about all this franchise cricket. So how important is it from maybe from an associate point of view, but even for full members to have, I suppose, this this stable base of income and then to be supplemented by franchise competitions and not relying on those franchise competitions? Yeah, I think especially when you look at the history of associate cricketers, they never get picked for the big bucks anyway. You know, it's always 10, 15, 20 thousand US max, unless you're a Sandeep or, a, or an Ali Khan. Um, so for them, these tournaments become even more important. And like you said, associate cricketers are not getting paid as much as test cricketers or as full member nations. And it's just an unnecessary burden put on associate cricketers who lead an already stressful life. You know, it's, it's just, it's, impossible to understand the stresses of an associate cricketer because nobody else in in a sporting industry would have to play that high of a level to go through so much stress you know you're worried about your family's future your finances matches Um, will you get paid tomorrow will there be financial problems so all of these tournaments then become even more important and you know franchise cricket why it's so good is so that players can go out there and express themselves freely but when you pile on all of these unnecessary pressures, it just then becomes even more tough. And I remember just, you know, sitting there and observing in Canada, you could definitely see the difference in the behaviors of the associate level players and the, the test level players. It, it was definitely visible to see, you know, the way that they, the way that the test players were going about their business, the way they were talking about it. You know, the way that they played their cricket compared to the way the associates played, it was as clear as night and day. You know, it's just something that needs to get rectified because associate players definitely have the talent and the skill, but just have that sort of pinpoint and that sort of pigeonhole of being an associate cricketer. And you can never go beyond a certain limit in your career unless you bowl wizard leg spin or you bowl 150 kilometers an hour. Well, even if you do, you get $3,000 for the CPL like Ali Khan did, huh? Exactly. I know you're not an administrator and you don't run global cricket, but what's the answer? How do, how do we change this? Because there's going to be a lot of kids growing up playing the game in countries, in associate nations and beyond. And, you know, I think collectively, and hopefully everyone listening to this podcast wants a future for them and the game in their countries. What's, what's the answer? And, and you, I think you're in a great position to, to answer this. I think it's 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 very hard to strike a balance. I think you've you've obviously you've got so many nations, you know, competing for for limited resources essentially because that's that's the sort of format that that's been you know put forward by the ICC. Look, I don't have all the answers, but I think getting more exposure to associate level players is is of paramount importance in terms of growing the game. You look at a tournament like Canada was fantastic in terms of getting associate players out there. You know, you, you had to have a certain amount of associate players in that team. And I thought, I think that's brilliant. Why not introduce that in more franchise tournaments where you have two or three associate players that have to get picked? 
or decrease the, the amount of tournaments that professional uh, that full member nation players are playing. So you can only play a certain amount of three tournaments a year. So the likes of Chris Gale or Dwayne Bravo, all of these players don't play all of them and take a place of, of a young upcomer who, who wants to showcase their skills. Definitely, it stems from the cricketing board in terms of how they run their, their finances and how they pay their players. But I've always been a firm believer in, in supporting the player and the player paying you back in terms of performance. You know, it's, it's something that I felt that I've seen both sides of the coin in, in the associate world and the test playing world. And, you know, the only difference, the difference in, in talent is there is none. There's no difference in talent. The difference is the pressure and the, the level of insecurity. I guarantee you, if you, if you chuck uh, a young upcomer from Nepal into a county system, I'm sure he's going to thrive and succeed and do well. It, it's, it's just something that needs to be looked at a little bit better in, in the ICC. And, um, you know, I did, have a, I did have a thought that if the 10-team World Cup was happening, then you ensure that all teams have to earn their place and qualify for the World Cup, kind of like football, where you make the ICC World Cup qualifiers even bigger of an event, where you've got teams like India and South Africa and New Zealand essentially having to qualify. And then you have the 10-team World Cup, which, which I think would be, again, having that exposure to high-octane cricket for associate cricket, cricketers, which would make them play under that pressure and get used to that pressure. You know, you take Afghanistan, for, an, for example, back in 2013, 2014, they were not a special team. You know, they, they were good in the associate world, but in the test playing world, they were way below average, getting steamrolled by every team they play. But they had the backing from the cricket board and the ICC to play as many matches as possible against test playing nations. And you, you look at them now, and it's, and it's phenomenal to see their rise in, in associate cricket. And I don't see why other teams can't do it as well. This is just a comment that, that kind of base, uh, bases itself on what you've said there, Anch. I don't necessarily have a question, but when I think about the gap between full members and associates, it only tends to really come through at senior level. You look at a lot of the underage tournaments, the, the under-19 World Cup results, and associate teams have actually quite a bit of success at that level. South Africa uh, South Africa lost to Namibia in an under-19 World Cup game. A couple of other examples that are coming to mind, um, Afghanistan were, were full members, I think, in 2018, but they reached the semi-final of that tournament. It only seems to be an issue once we get into senior level cricket and the, and the disparity in the resources between associates and, and full member countries as well. Yeah, I think like associate cricketers are definitely skilled enough. I think you saw, you know, you've got a record of matches over the last decade in which associate cricketers, associate teams have performed well against testing nations. They are capable of doing it. It's just getting used to that level of pressure and getting used to that fast paced game and getting used to that high octane level of cricket that is lacking. That's it. You know, the World Cup winners in 2019 lost to Scotland in 2018. And why was Scotland not in the World Cup? You know, Scotland beat Sri Lanka as well. Why were they not in the World Cup? You know, it's just, I don't think it's, it's fair that a team like, say, for example, a team like England don't have to qualify. They've lost to these teams, but they don't have to qualify. But a team like Scotland, despite beating these teams, have to qualify. 
so I believe that I believe that it should be a level playing field. That all teams should have to qualify for the ten team World Cup if you're making it a ten team World Cup. Regional qualifiers. Regional qualifiers, group stages, however you want to go with it. What do you think about the Cricket World Cup League structure as it is the thirteen team plus seven plus two divisions of six in that context? It's definitely a step in the right direction. You look at the Netherlands who have performed very well over the last decade, finally getting full ODI status, um, which is a great thing, playing 40-odd ODIs over two years, which is something unheard of in the associate world five years ago. Um, you know, you've increased the amount of ODI teams um, from 16 to 20 ODI nations now, which is, uh, which is a brilliant thing. Again, you've got the Challenge League, which has been given this stage status. So, you know, things are definitely going in the right direction. I think, personally, it's a couple of years in the making. And um, and I think the ICC should keep recognising and keep rewarding uh, rewarding associate cricketers for good performances. Another result that I just had a uh, look at, uh, Nepal's under-19s beat India under-19s in a game in 2017 in the ACC under-19 comp. So, yeah, it, again, like it goes back to to what, what we're saying, you know, without that help in the right direction it can be very very difficult and there, there's just there's just been this this ceiling that no one can break through at the associate level and cricket world cup league two and, and the challenge league give a little bit more of a platform and a little bit more consistent cricket but if there's not a a strong pathway from a qualifying aspect to, to global tournaments particularly the 10 team world cup it kind of just becomes a logjam again where everyone gets stuck at least with the t20 world cup there's there's 16 teams, but for, for a 10-team 50-over tournament, it, it's it's a bit ludicrous, really. Well, if you look at the players who have left associate cricket over the last few years, pretty much their motives were down to the lack of exposure in associate cricket. You look at, you know, just mentioning some team players from, from, from Hong Kong, you've got Jamie Atkinson, obviously, financially uh, making the decision to pursue a teacher, teaching position in, in Hong Kong. Is obviously more financially viable than being an international professional sportsman. You've got Mark Chapman leaving Hong Kong for the same reasons that I did, you know, wanting to further his career and potentially play test cricket one day. You know, I've also left, you know, you've got Chris Carter. Chris Carter, exactly. Chris Carter as well, um, leaving to pursue a career in, in um, aviation. So it's just trying to break that ceiling because unfortunately associate cricket just has such a low ceiling and you've got you've got a lot of talented cricketers who are capable of achieving at the highest level but just are not given the opportunity to. and that's something that for me personally I was not able to live with you know at, at least coming to India I can look at myself and say I've given it a good go even if I don't make it fine that's okay, I can live with that. But to not have the opportunity is something that, that definitely dampens my spirits. And, you know, you kind of just go through the motions in associate cricket because the ceiling is so low. Whereas in international test playing nations, you know, you've got an Asia Cup, you've got a World Cup, you've got emerging nations, you've got India A, you've got all sorts of cricket going on. So you're never shy of it. Whereas when you're playing domestic, when you're playing in associate cricket, it's just not enough to to feed the security levels of, of yourself. Yeah, and it's 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 not like uh, I mean I'm sure Jamie Atkinson doesn't mind his job of being a teacher, but I think he would much rather play international cricket for his country at a, at an elite level full time than than sitting in a classroom all day. Hundred percent. 
hundred percent. It's uh, you know I've had a lot of conversations with him, and whenever he's free or whenever he's able to, he's always ready to put the Hong Kong shirt on. And um, you know I certainly think that had associate. You know I read an article somewhere that said you know the whole reason why associate cricket's not getting as much of a look in is because of the two thousand seven World Cup when an Indian Pakistan match turned out to be Bangladesh Ireland and the ICC lost a lot of money in terms of, of viewing. But, you know, you look back and that was, what, 13 years ago. It's, it's a different stage now. A lot of people don't want to watch a one-sided match, which is what's happening nowadays. They want to watch a closely knit contest between two teams, irrespective of who's playing. You know, you certainly see, you know, I was more, intru- more interested in, in, the, um, in the Scotland-England game than I was in the India-Pakistan game at the Asia Cup because that was a one-sided game. It's just something that a lot of viewers have come to understand is that they would rather close games and associate associate nations are definitely closing that gap. It's just a question of being able to break that ceiling and allow them more exposure at that level. Just thinking about Jamie Atkinson specifically, you know, he's the kind of guy that you, you want to have around the team. He's, he's a good influence on the team. He, he's a senior player. And you just don't have that so much in associate cricket because everyone needs to, you know, sort of leave and and pursue a you know a real job and to support themselves financially, which is um, yeah, that, that's sort of a weakness is that you don't have the senior guys helping to mould the team in the same way. Yeah, it all stems down to the pathway, isn't it? It's the fact that Hong Kong cricket or associate cricket in general that the pathway is is just not there. You know, in order in order to have a youngster motivated, there's just no motivation. You need to have them motivated at a young age in order to keep going and to keep pursuing their sport. You know, I definitely saw that in England. You know, I when I first moved to England, I I wasn't the best cricket. I was pretty off the pace, to be honest. And you know, I saw a few England development players at the Middlesex Academy. I saw the level that I had to get to in order to succeed at this level. But for me, it was very clear in day was that this is the level, this is where I am, this is what I need to do to get there. Whereas at associate cricket, because that level is not as high, a lot of people lose interest or they're, they're able to coast. You know, you have one good game and you're like, oh, I'm not going to get knocked out of the team now for two years. You know, that's certainly some attitudes that we had in Hong Kong. You know, you sort of perform once and you're like, I'm good for another year now. And um, again, that's just not healthy attitude to have around the camp. And that certainly did go around in, in the Hong Kong dressing. I'm not sure about other associate nations, but um, definitely in the Hong Kong uh, dressing room, you kind of need that healthy competition to have that motivation. And unfortunately, there's just not enough. So you were captaining that team going through all that. What, what did you learn about leadership? throughout that period with everything that was going on we you know we know about the match fixing um you know two players are banned for life another was coming to the end of his five-year ban and we ha- we haven't even got to the unrest in hong kong you know this is this is in the the years prior you know what did you learn about about leadership there as an 18 19 21 20 year old captain of your country going through this it was something i, I learned that age is very important to in Asian culture, you know, that's something that I think some of the lads kind of struggled with taking orders from a 20 year old, definitely in Namibia playing that tournament, it kind of felt that way, you know, obviously going into the, into the Asia cup was, was fantastic captain in the side. I really felt like 
bowlers and players were communicating with me and I with them and there was a clear cut trust between each other. I then, uh, I go to New Zealand for a couple of months um, and I come back and it just didn't have the same vibe anymore. The, the sort of toxicity felt like it had come back. You know, certainly when I when I was given captaincy very abruptly in, in Malaysia, it, it felt like, you know, players just were like, okay, we have to get on with it sort of feeling. And then as the tournament progressed, we started doing well and they sort of gained that trust in me. But then playing in Namibia, it just didn't feel like it was there. We had, you know, obviously we didn't have Nizakat um, because of the uh, because of the death of his his father, uh, we had a few injuries around the squad. We, uh, you know, it just didn't feel very. It didn't feel like a very good vibe. You know, players were arguing. I remember this one incident against Papua New Guinea where straight. I mean, even before we're walking off the pitch, you know, two players are getting into a massive argument, and this is game two out of six in seven days or something like that, and. In a tournament that short, you don't have time to get angry at anyone. You don't have time to mourn over a, over and be sad about a, a loss or be happy about a victory. You just have to get on with it. And people who haven't played World Cricket Leagues, it, it comes thick and fast, these games. And, you know, you need to be prepared for anything. And, you know, it just didn't feel like we were. I think, I, I still think we were one of the, we were one of the better sides going into that tournament. But, I just don't, I think other teams were better prepared than us. I think plain and simple, they were better prepared than us. And um, we just didn't expect, you know, we didn't expect the level of intensity that the other teams were, were coming to hit us with. And I think rather than standing up to fight, I felt like our players had given up at that stage. Yeah, and really it couldn't have been a more important tournament. You know, top, top four ODI status, three quarters of a million dollars a year in funding, plus other things paid for to get around the world to, to play in those events, half a million dollars less and 15 list day games over two and a half years, you know, and the three of us were there, you know, and I, I saw every one of those games and I saw that argument. It always bemused me being a spin bowler, how a spinner and a, and a wicketkeeper could get in a fight. You know, there, there should be no closer relationship. I think one of our players cried, actually. Like it, it was that sort of level of Jesus Christ grow up. It's just... You know, I think it got to that stage where after that India game, everyone's chest grew 10 sizes and they all thought that they could do it. And then you come to a tournament like Namibia where we haven't played an international game in, in four or five months. You have to restart. You have to start from scratch and go from zero. And it felt like players were coming up with excuses because they hadn't done the prep work or players started just saying, nah, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Arguing over each other, you know, silly things. And you just kind of say, how can a 21 year old sit here and tell you and literally babysit this? Because this, it was just far beyond my control. I just, it just got chaotic. And it certainly was one of the worst tours I've been a part of, certainly in, in my, uh, in my career playing Hong Kong. That's the end of part one with Anchi Rath. We'll have part two on next week's show. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast and don't miss out on our bonus program where Tim Cutler joined Jared Kimber at the Red Inca in a crossover event discussing T20 and franchise cricket. For now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.